So good to see so many out this morning. I'm honestly surprised spring break is usually a time when people tend to, you know, be gone. So I'm glad you're not, I, even if that means it's selfish of me just because I like having you here. But uh, thanks for being here today and making this a priority in your week. My name is Wes, uh, one of the pastors here at Dunbar, and uh, glad to worship together with you. I'm going to invite you now um, to do what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn today to the book of Acts. Book of Acts chapter 9, and we're going to start in the second half of verse 19. And when you found that, if you're able, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke writes this. <clears throat> for some days he, this is um, the Apostle Paul, recently transformed, come to faith in Jesus. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket, which probably sounds cool, like an Indiana Jones kind of adventure, but uh, as Paul references this later, he was quite embarrassed and humiliated by this as he had come here in such pomp and circumstance and now leaving in humility. Verse 26, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Yeah. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. It's kind of a common theme here. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. That's his hometown. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's God's word. Maybe seated. Let me pray for us briefly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word? Open our eyes, our hearts, our ears uh, to receive, uh, as we've just sung this morning, to receive your word. Uh, and I pray that uh, as we receive it, that you would accomplish the purpose for which you want to accomplish in each one of us. I believe there is a reason you sent this out today, and you tell us in your word. When you send out your word, it never returns void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today, whatever it is. And as I ask always now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever noticed the way that TV families always seem so sickeningly perfect? It's annoying about it, really. Um, do you rec I don't know if you recognize some of these families. These are TV families I grew up with. Um, and sure, they, they often try in the midst of trying to make it seem real life and normal. They put in all kinds of real life 
conflict and difficulty to make it seem more accessible. Like, hey, we're just like you. We struggle just like you. Uh, so, you know, it's like Timmy gets expelled from school for fighting, but he doesn't want Sally to tell mom and dad about it. So there's this struggle, you know, maybe the, the carts get stuck in the mud and Pa can't get it out because of the rains, whatever it is. Um, all kinds of different conflicts that happen to make it seem more real life. But when, when any problem in this family can be introduced, solved, and resolved, all within the space of 30 minutes, including commercial breaks, clearly they're presenting an unattainable level of perfection that would leave even the Brady Bunch and the Ingalls feeling like failures as a family. It's just not possible. And yet the, the perfection, if we can call it that, that TV families present, it's really nothing more than facile reasoning presented as entertainment. If you're not familiar with this word facile, it basically just means presenting a quite complex issue in a really simplified way, as though it's just easy. It's just like that, when really there's a lot more complexity to it. That's really what these TV families are presenting in this kind of entertainment, but making you feel like, hey, we're the perfect family. Because real family is far more challenging than that, isn't it? Uh, um, it, it presents a much higher level of Olympic difficulty than what we see presented on the TV screen. Uh, what, what takes 30 minutes to process uh, on television, maybe 60 minutes if it's a really challenging issue and they need a double episode to cover it, um, sometimes can take years to process through as a family. And, and at times, maybe never gets resolved. That, that's what reality is like. And yet somehow, even knowing that, we still love our TV families, don't we? We love to watch it and we both secretly long for their curated closeness and measure ourselves against their idealist, idealistically scripted happiness. Why can't we be more like, why can't I be more a dad like Jack Pearson? Whatever it is. Interestingly, I think the very same thing can be said about the way we view something like community. Community, this is the next value that's at the core of who we are, this, this core foundation, core value for our church that I want to dig in today, community. Again, we've said this each week, uh, values are like building foundations. You, you don't see them, and yet every organization, even a spiritual organization like a church, has them and is shaped and formed and directed by their influence. But community, I think we can see it this way because of all the five values that we're going to be looking at here, that, that are at the core of everything, of who we are and how we operate as a church, I think this value in particular has the greatest potential to be understood in this exact same way, like a TV family. That is, in this kind of simplistic, overly simplified, idealized way that's both simultaneously unattainable and yet leaves us feeling like failures for having not attained it. Community is its this kind of big buzzword. It's something we hear a lot about, like, oh yeah, community, like that's, that's such the vibe today. And yet, it's a really more complicated thing. So, community, as we've come to learn, if you've been a part of one for even more than five minutes, it's not, contrary to popular opinion, formed by just simply gathering a bunch of people together in a room on a Sunday morning. That, that's one aspect of community, but it's only one. That's not how you form true, deep community. It's, it's so much more different than that. Real community. Real community is where real life and transformation really takes place. Particularly when you think about a church community. Your faith and, and your growth in your life in Jesus is not something that is accomplished just you and Jesus and your Bible. 
the, the whole idea of what God formed in making the church was that it would be a community of people who come together and that that's where transformation, life, and, and change takes place as we learn from each other, as I learn from your experience of God, as I, as I come alongside you in your own struggles. That's, that's what the church is meant to be. And a community like that takes a lot of work. It's not just putting people together in a room on Sunday morning. And yet, when we believe it is as simple as that, we can become deceived into believing either that we are a community when nothing could be further from the truth, or we can become discouraged and delusioned when we come to realize that truly being a part of a community actually takes a lot more work than we initially thought it was going to. Tim Keller, I think, said it so well when he talks about the fact everybody loves the idea of community, he says. Everyone loves the idea of deep relationships until they find out what's actually involved in order to have them. Mentioned accountability and commitment, he writes, and suddenly everyone runs the other way. I think that's true. So, so what, is, what is real community? What's required in order to really accomplish this at a deep level and, and, and experience all the blessings and benefits that come about when we really are truly part of a community. Benefits that far outweigh any pretend TV pseudo-community that we might be tempted to want to uh, pursue instead. What does actual community really look like? Well, I think that's one of the benefits of having a book like the book of Acts in our Bible. Because what we see here is essentially the story of the very first church community as it's coming together after Jesus ascends into heaven, sends the Holy Spirit on his people. Now they got to figure out how to do this. And interestingly, God doesn't rescue them out of the complexity of it, doesn't rescue them out of the messiness of it. They, they experience it and we have it cataloged for us here in the book of Acts. All the messiness and difficulty of what it means to put a community together at this deep level. And although you could literally point to almost anywhere in the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts and find an example of messy, difficult community, I, want to look, uh, I wanted to focus on this passage here today in Acts chapter 9, what takes, immediately, uh, what takes place immediately following Paul's conversion, because I think it's one of the most accessible examples of what real community formation looks like, and it doesn't require you to have a lot of Jewish cultural background to understand why that's so significant. You can access it pretty clearly. I think we can all grasp fairly easily how welcoming somebody who until recently had wanted to arrest and or kill you for your faith in Jesus might present a challenge to forming real community in the church. So in order to help us learn that and, and grow and understand ourselves, what this looks like in our own community of faith, I want to work through our passage today in just three simple ways with you today. We're going to talk about the power of a question. We're going to talk about the gift of advocacy. And then lastly, in closing, we'll look at the missed opportunity of hiding. Okay, just those three things. The power of a question, the gift of advocacy, the missed opportunity of hiding. So if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, would you open them again with me to that passage and follow along with me uh, here in uh, Acts chapter 9, second half of verse 19. Follow along as we look at the next of five values at the core of who we are, and who we hope to be as a church. So let's look first of all at the power of a question. Power of a question. Now just to catch you up quickly, I don't want to assume that everybody knows the events that have led up to this moment here. To give you a bit of the backstory that's led up to verse 19. The Apostle Paul, previously known as Saul of Tarsus, 
was at the top of his class. He was valedictorian of his class coming out of the school of Pharisees and is now also relentless in his vicious and violent pursuit of anything or anyone connected with that fake Messiah, Jesus. He wants to stamp out every last trace of it. So as our passage begins with Saul already in Damascus, but, but what led him to come there in the first place, as we see in verse 21, was that he'd been given letters by the chief priests in Jerusalem that he could arrest anybody who was a part of the church here in Damascus, drag them back to Jerusalem in order to stand trial. In fact, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 9, verse 1, literally describes uh, the actions and attitudes of Saul towards the church as ravaging the church, as, as breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But although Jesus and his followers are public enemy number one for Saul, the resurrected Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus. Interestingly, with the message, not saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? But Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So intimately does Jesus identify with the community of his church that to persecute the church is to persecute him. Saul is struck blind in this encounter with Jesus. And then for the next three days, he neither eats or drinks or sees until God sends his servant Ananias to go and lay hands on Saul and pray for him that he might regain his sight and receive the Holy Spirit. That's very briefly what led up to this moment in verse 19 of our passage where Saul is meeting with disciples in Damascus and proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God in the synagogue. It might seem normal to you if you read the Bible or had much experience in church and whatnot to hear Paul preaching in the synagogue saying Jesus is Lord, but with this context, hopefully now you see it's a much bigger deal that Paul is doing this, staggering that he would be doing this. But even with that summary alone in hand, I trust you can easily imagine, no matter how miraculous, no matter how incredible the transformation that he'd undergone, you can imagine how awkward, how, how unsettling, how even terrifying it would feel for this fledgling community of the church to figure out how to welcome and worship alongside someone who the day before was breathing out murderous threats against them who'd come with the expressed intent of dragging them to prison in Jerusalem. Like, how do you just interact with that guy? You can imagine how Paul's backstory would have gone over at a newcomer's lunch when the host invited him to share, you know, let, let us know a bit about what brought you to Damascus and uh, how you heard about our church. It'd be an awkward story. But e either way, regardless of how that worked out, what we know is that they didn't figure it out in 30 minutes. It took a lot longer to figure out how to do this and how to make it happen. But as it relates to real authentic community and how it's found and formed, something I want to highlight in contrast in particular are two different initial responses to Saul that we see in our passage when he first shows up to worship. Because if you notice, look first of all at verse 26. You'll notice that the, the, the response of the church in Jerusalem right off the bat is fear, is avoidance. They, they want nothing to do with Paul. Paul's coming in like, hello, brothers. I'm so glad to worship with you. And they're like, um, are you though? Not so much. We don't, we don't want to have anything to do with you. So, so they immediately are just like afraid. They shut him out. But then if you look at verse 21, when Paul shows up and starts preaching in Damascus, yeah, the response is still fear. The response is still confusion. But it also includes asking questions. You notice that? They ask questions. So look at me at verse 21 here. When Paul comes uh, in, they, they ask the question. They say, is this not the man 
who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon its name, that is Jesus. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? So they're asking questions of what's going on? How do I understand what's happening here? I love Bruce Milne's commentary on this questioning that they have where they're like, isn't this the same man who did all this stuff? And he writes this. Well, yes, he is. And no, he isn't. Yes, he's the same man, Saul of Tarsus, Hebrew of Hebrews, Gamaliel's prize student, Pharisee, Nazarene persecutor. But no, he isn't the same man at all anymore. A baptized Christian, a preacher of the gospel of Jesus, a new man in Christ. But here's my point. Yes, welcoming Saul into this community of worship was awkward. It was scary. He, he, his reputation certainly preceded him. And no question, they had good reason to be scared. But despite their fears and without any kind of already prescribed process of how to work this out, the key to moving forward into the messiness of the community was that they asked questions. They were curious. They, they sought to learn information rather than assuming they already knew all they needed to know simply by Paul's reputation. Because assuming uh, is one of the like, key factors of like, destroying community or at least keeping it right here on the surface. Because first of all, assuming can be detrimental when it comes to welcoming and going deeper beyond the surface in relationship with people that are different than you or people that are new to you when they seek to be a part of the community. Because when I assume information about you based on your appearance, based on your reputation, things I know about you, whatever it is, I allow my surface impressions of you to replace actual information. And I also rob you of the ability to have agency of your own story. I tell you what your story is when I assume these things. But assuming can also be detrimental when it comes to welcoming and going deeper beyond the surface in community with people who look very much like you, people you're familiar with as well. You can keep community on the surface then because when I assume I know what you believe, when I assume I know how you're doing or how things are going in your family, that I assume that your maturity in faith is a certain level because of how long you've been attending the church or because you have a certain title that goes along with your name, pastor something, so therefore you must this. When I assume those things, once again, I allow impressions to replace information. And then everybody, everyone is robbed of the opportunity to grow deeper in community because it always stays up here. It just stays with what I can assume based on what I think I know about you. So yes, no question, Paul's example is an extreme example, but look, so is his testimony. His testimony is extreme as well, a testimony that would have been missed. They wouldn't have known about it if someone in the community hadn't taken time to ask the question, isn't this the same guy who, no? And then continue, okay, why not? Why isn't he the same guy? Why is he here worshiping? Incredible. Now they hear the story of Jesus' incredible work of transformation in his life because they took the time to ask questions. And no, listen, this, this is not an invitation as we seek to do this as a community and experience that greater depth. Uh, it's not an invitation to be nosy. Um, it's not an invitation to, uh, you know, learn information about people so you can pray about them with your friends and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. But it is absolutely an encouragement to be genuinely curious with each other. To, to press beyond our safe, comfortable walls of assumptions of, of the usual people that we like to hang out with on a Sunday and become students of one another. 
to ask questions and truly seek to learn the people that God has gathered together in this strange, diverse gathering of people called Dunbar Heights Baptist Church, to really learn each other. For knowing each other deeply and more and more deeply is both a key to actually experiencing that depth of community where real transformation takes place, and it also communicates to others the welcome of God as they see people welcomed in and, and not just like, hey, how are you, but like a real getting to know at a deeper level that, that communicates to all who see it the welcome of God. But the point is, experiencing that greater depth requires the power of a question. Or maybe we could even say the honor, honoring others enough to ask them questions. So much more I want to say about that. But let's move press on from here and we'll talk now um, after the power of a question. We'll look at the gift of advocacy. Where you see this beautiful act of community building is both in the prayerful pursuit of Ananias in verses 10 through 19, which I referenced earlier, but we didn't read, and then the coming alongside support of Barnabas in verse 27. This is where we see this beautiful community building aspect here. Both men, um, as we read through their story, are, are pressed far outside their regular circles of community in order to welcome in this newly converted person with a particularly intimidating past and background. And yet at the call of Jesus, they both go willingly for Ananias. Jesus' call on his life is literally to walk into the lion's den with nothing more the promise of, don't worry, he doesn't bite anymore. And then for Barnabas, he risks his own standing and reputation with the church and with the community of faith in order to bring this former persecutor of the church to the apostles and advocate for the genuineness, the reality of his conversion. He's risking a great deal in order to be called to this. But as you can see, the beautiful results in their willingness to do this and to come alongside Saul is he is invited into community, he's accepted in the community, he comes in and out freely, and he's even protected by them. He's protected by them when his life is threatened by the Hellenists, uh, very, the, the very group of Greek-speaking Jews that had stoned Stephen, the first martyr back in chapter 7, and Paul had stood there approving of his execution. Now, Paul is protected against these very people. But as you think about what this could look like in our church community today, I trust that first and foremost, the thing that you can see quite clearly and draw from our passage is that there's likely not one of us who will ever serve and advocate for someone as notorious as Saul of Tarsus within our church community here at Dunbar Heights. I don't want to say never. I mean, maybe it could happen, but probably not. We're probably never going to be called to, to welcome and invite someone in of that kind of notorious stature and, and background. But regardless of that reality, just flip the perspective for a moment and think about the difficulty and the circumstance that Paul is facing here at the outset of his new life with Jesus. F.F. Bruce paints the picture well, stating this, On the one hand, Saul's old associates knew all about his defection, so he could expect no friendly welcome from them. But then on the other hand, the disciples of Jesus, with whom he, he wished uh, to associate, had not forgotten his, his campaign of persecution. So he's, he's losing on both sides. He doesn't fit anywhere. And my point is this. While you might never meet someone like Saul of Tarsus, you absolutely know someone in similar circumstances like that who comes in together and worship on a Sunday morning. You know somebody like that who's experiencing this tension of two worlds on either side. They don't fit anywhere. 
someone maybe on the very cusp of faith, just checking out church, or someone newly begun their walk with Jesus and looking for a place to learn and grow uh, among others, many of whom are already experiencing ridicule, already experiencing rejection from friends or family for their faith, or they're living in hiding for fear of those things. And my question to you is this, church family, what would you want that person's experience of community to be when they swallow the the heart in their throat, and walk through that front door of this building? What would you want their experience of community to be, living in that tension of feeling like I don't fit anywhere? And please hear me, this is not a, here, this is not an invitation to mob people. This is not an invitation to overwhelm people. Uh, and I think for the most part, I think we actually do okay at this. I think, I think Dunbar Heights is, is pretty good at being a community that welcomes and includes easily. I think that's true. But, but could we do this even better? Could, could we do this even more intentionally? Man, if this, if this is something that's a passion for you and you're excited about this, I would love to sit down with you uh, later this week or in the coming weeks and, and chat with you and talk about some ideas about how we could do this even better as a church, to welcome people more intentionally. Because far too often, Either because maybe you grew up in church and so you can't imagine anybody having a different experience or feeling about church than you already have yourself. Or because we just get so caught up in, in the pattern of doing church on Sunday. The structure of it. Oh, it's got to have this and then this happens. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't have time for that. Uh, I, I just, I just want to hang out with my community, my, my community within the community of people. I don't want to bring anyone else into that. Um, you know what, I just need church to be about me today. I just need, I don't have time for this kind of thing. All of these things lead us to a place where we don't really see people. We don't really see those people as they come in. And all I'm saying is if we want to be the kind of community that we say we want to be and that I believe God is calling us to be, can't, we can't do that anymore. We need to be willing to, to see people and step outside of our places of comfort and what we're used to. John Stott put it this way, he says, true conversion always issues in church membership, but it's not only that converts must join the Christian community, but that the Christian community must welcome new converts. There is an urgent need for modern Ananiases and Barnabases who overcome their scruples and hesitations and take the initiative to befriend newcomers. So remember, it's within the context of community, of, of really knowing each other that that's where the deep transformation happens. That's where the new life really takes root, when we really know each other, when we really know where people are struggling. Who, who is it that needs you to be an Ananias today? Who needs you to be a Barnabas and come alongside them? But having said that, you know what? Maybe, maybe the person that you know that needs advocacy isn't someone on the cusp of faith or new to faith at all. There's someone who's actually been a part of this church community for years. But while they equally are in need of advocacy and being served within this community, you don't know it. You have no idea that they need that. I want to close this morning by kind of building out of the last point and considering the missed opportunity of hiding missed opportunity for, for advocacy when we hide. Let's begin once again with Paul. 
When you think about his life and the life he lived before Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and utterly transformed his life, think about his life. The, the passion with which Saul of Tarsus had pursued, hunted, and, and abused the church in order to stamp out every trace of Jesus from the known world. Right? He, he must have carried around this incredible amount of, of guilt and shame at the very thought of the person that he'd been, the things that he'd done uh, in, in assault of this Savior who he'd now come to love. He must have carried this incredible burden with himself. And we know he probably did because if you read the rest of Acts or you look through uh, a lot of Paul's other letters, he brings it up a lot. He brings up his past a lot, not, not to brag, but I think just because he's so amazed at the grace and mercy of God to save him in spite of what he'd done. So it's his testimony of, if God can save someone like me, look what he can do to you. But he brings it up a lot. So I think he carried a lot of weight for that. And yet an important thing to remember is that it wasn't just Paul that knew about those things, right? So did everyone else. Everybody else also knew about Paul's past and what he had done, right? Why? Well, because they'd been the ones who had been pursued, hunted, and abused by Paul. Uh, they were the ones that were the target of his hatred with Jesus. Okay, so Paul had this very public wearing of his past the rest of his life, due in, very, in large part to the very public nature of his crimes. Right? His, his laundry was hung out in the line for everybody to see. But my point in bringing that up is to ask you this. How many of you, when you hear a description like that, would say that that's the same story for themselves? That that's your story? You'd be like, yeah, me too. All of my stuff is hung out to dry for everybody to see. Would you say that's true of you? I mean, as I look around this room, uh, I don't think so. I don't, I don't see anybody here who, who I've, I've seen on the news. I haven't seen your picture up on any community notices warning me about you. Um, so I, I don't think that's any of us. And, and don't hear me. I'm not complaining about that. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I mean, good. I'm glad that, that you aren't. But what it also means is that the only way anyone in this community knows anything about you is because you've shared it. It's because you've made the intentional choice to make it known. Which maybe you would agree with that. You'd be like, yes, that's right. Uh, we need to make ourselves known. And yet the really hard thing to think about is, that it is, is how little most of us are willing to actually make ourselves known. Seeing serving, advocating for one another. It's this essential part of what it means to be a real, true community. And yet it's one of the hardest aspects of community to live out. Most times we need to be forced into it when we can't hide what's happened, like Paul. Why? Well, lots of reasons. I think for one, it's an issue of safety. That's probably one of the, the, the most primary reasons why we don't do this well. The church, generally speaking, ha has done a pretty bad job historically of being a safe place to share struggles and failures. To make them known, which, which really is baffling when you consider that the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, said he'd come to seek and to save the lost. That he'd come not for the, 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 the healthy, but for the sick. Which means the church should be the most safest community of all to make our struggles and failures known, and yet I know it hasn't been. Many times that people have experienced the church as a place of judgment, as a place of, of exclusion where you are shut out. To use an intentionally uh, kind of provocative term, the church many times has been known more for its cannibalism than its care. 
So that's a big part of why we don't do this well. And as I said before, I want to say here again, man, if, if this is a particular passion of yours, if you're like, man, we need to do this better, I would love to chat with you as well. I would love to sit down and pray and talk through how we can make the church a safer place to share our struggles this way, to make ourselves known. Because we're never going to reach those deeper levels of growth and life if we don't. But that's one reason I think alongside that, perhaps not as prominent, but alongside that, another reason that we don't do this aspect of community well is because of pride. Because although we're all, every single one of us, sin-sick patients in need of Jesus' healing and the care of his community, even though we're all a people in process, as we said when we went through our, our visions statement, we're all a people in process, man, we're all so terribly adept at hiding it. We're so good at pretending we're not. Coming in here on a Sunday morning, how are you doing? How are things going? I'm great. Rejoicing in the joy of the Lord. How about you? Also, awesome. Move on to the next person. How are you today, brother? Like, and it just all stays up here, right? And yeah, sure, maybe we'll risk making a big exam known. Um, we'll risk letting, uh, making known a family member who's in hospital, looking for work, all kinds of things. We'll, we'll risk making those kinds of things known. But who in this community knows your deepest struggles and fears and failures? Who even knows that you need an Ananias or a Barnabas to come alongside you and advocate for you, to stand with you, to pray for you? Because far too often, man, how, for instance, how, how do we come to learn that someone's been struggling in their marriage? Don't we just like hear about them months down the road? Oh no, they're not together anymore. And you're just like, what? I didn't even know. Or how do we learn that someone has been going through like a real deep uh, crisis in their faith and they're struggling with questions about God and faith that, that feel unanswerable or maybe unaskable? Don't we just not see them at church for months and then suddenly find out, oh, actually, no, they, they, they haven't just left our church. They've left the church and the faith altogether. That's usually how we find out this stuff, not because, because we don't know. We're, we're not willing to make ourselves known until it's too late, until the damage is already done. Which, hear me, that's not for a moment to suggest that everyone needs to know where you're struggling. I'm not saying that. Uh, uh, and everyone needs to know where you failed. Nor is it to say that even if you do make those things known, where you're struggling, where you failed, I can guarantee you that that's always going to be held carefully and, 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 and rightly with compassion by whoever you make it known to. I can't guarantee that. But what I am saying, first of all, is someone should know. Somebody should know. And the hard reality is that it's only in risking trust that deeper trust is ever built. We need to be willing to risk trust if deeper trust is ever to be built. So if you've been here over the last few weeks, um, you've known that with each core value, we've written a different statement intended to describe both what we mean by that value as well as inspire us to an even deeper valuing and kind of living that out real time uh, as we go through it. So far, we've talked about the value of the Word of God and of prayer. But for community, this value today, again, which I think we're in the most danger of settling for that pretend TV version because the real thing is so much harder to bring about. 
the way we've chosen to state this value of community is like this. We are a diverse gathering with a common purpose. Unified in the messy joy of knowing others and being known, we are a place of belonging that demonstrates the welcome of God. And hopefully in reading over that, you see a lot of the elements of what we've talked about today as it relates to community, right? You have, you have people from all different backgrounds and walks of life and stages of life, which, which we see as a great thing. That's a really good thing to have a diversity of community like that. Gathered together under this common purpose, which as we've stated in our vision, is that we'd all be ministers of gospel renewal in our city and world to each other as well as to the community around us. That's, that's one part of what it means to be community, that we're gathered together under this common purpose and common person. But along with that, look at some of these other elements. We seek to truly know others. We seek to be students of each other and asking questions, seeking to learn the community that we've been placed in and gathered under. We also seek to work harder than we have been, to let ourselves be known as well to make ourselves known, believing that greater risk of trust is the only way to bring about deeper experience of it. And then lastly, this whole part about joy, the messy joy. There's great joy for us in being part of this ever-deepening community, but we also recognize that the work of deeper community is going to be messy. It's going to require work. And so we advocate for one another in order that belonging and welcoming might be the experience of everyone from the decades-long member of this church to the brand-new person just checking out our community for the first time. I suppose, like, in the end, kind of the big-picture meta-goal of of this value and the way it's stated here is really this, is that we could ensure, as much as humanly possible and as God enables us, that Dunbar Heights Baptist Church is and remains and continues to become a community where it would never be said that someone experienced the welcome of God, but not of his people. I think that's, if I could just state it broadly speaking, that's my desire for us and what it means to be a community. Someone would know not just the welcome of God, but also of his people. May God help us to do that uh, in all these ways and to press into this uh, today and in the coming months and weeks and years that we spend together. Amen. Amen.